As Rich said, we're, we're looking at, uh, we've been looking at this letter, Paul's letter to the Roman church written 2,000 years ago. We're spending eight weeks in it, looking at what does it, what does it still say to us today? What does it still mean for us today? And if you read the book of Romans and you talk to anybody who likes theology, they'll tell you Romans is basically a dictionary for Christians. It's full of all the important words like justification and sanctification and righteousness. And that is exciting, and I personally find that very exciting. Um, but we're not really spending eight weeks delving into all the nitty-grittiness. We want to we wanna get the thrust, the impact of what Paul is saying about the goodness of the gospel and how it meets with you, how it transforms your life, and how a life with Jesus uh, is transformative. Hands up if you've got a Bible. It can be electronic. Great. If you've got a Bible, switch it on, open it up. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry. The words are going to be on the screen behind me. We're going to look at the verses that we're looking at this afternoon, which is in Romans chapter 3, which is in the New Testament, which is at this end of the Bible. Um, um, We're going to read these words together. Uh, So you can follow along on the screen or uh, in your Bible in front of you. Don't worry if your translation is a little bit different. That just makes it funny. Okay, so we're going to read these words. and Beautiful. You just follow along and I'll read them as well. But now, apart, you use your voice, apart from the law, there we go, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Amen. Well done. Let me start with a story. Summer, summer holidays, me and the family go to France, spend two weeks there, lovely time, come back. We're getting a late ferry back, we're arriving into Portsmouth at half past nine at night. I've planned this. Um, I think it's okay to drive a young family with two young children from Portsmouth to Leeds from 9.30 at night, arriving back at Leeds at 1am in the morning. There's like Matt and a few parents at the back who get why that is a stupid idea. It is a stupid idea. My wife told me it was a stupid idea when we landed in Portsmouth. I was like, it'll be fine. An hour later, when we're still sat in Portsmouth and we haven't gone through border control, I'm starting to recognize it is a bad idea. At 11 o'clock at night, we stop to get a coffee. I go into a service station. Costa Coffee is closed, but McDonald's is open. I thought, what a great way to enhance our journey home to get some food. It takes a little while, maybe 10 to 15 minutes. So I come back with coffees and food, and all I see is my wife's face staring at me like with eyes of death through the car window. (laughs) What's wrong? I open the door. That's Annabelle, my youngest, in the back, who's woken up. The next hour is not a good hour. She screams. Rianne gets annoyed. I apologize, but secretly still think, it's still fine. We arrive home at 3 a.m. Both kids wake up at this point and are up for an hour and a half. We go to sleep at 4.30 a.m. They then wake up on the dot at 7 a.m. the next day. So me and Rihanna have had two and a half hours sleep. It's not a happy home. So that is a a bad moment. Then the next day, it kind of gets worse because Rihanna is playing with Annabelle. Annabelle's very excited. She thrusts her finger up in the air and it and it catches Rianne in the eye, and Annabelle's fingernail actually cuts across Rianne's pupil. 
really painful. Rianne is, I would say, in agony at this point. She goes upstairs and she lies on the bed and she's kicking her legs in so much pain. And I said, can you just, can you just give me an indication of how bad this is? And all she said was, labor. <laughs> I was like, okay, we're going to hospital. So I drive her down to the minor injuries unit. We decided not to do A&E. Drive her down to the minor injuries unit and basically leave her there because I need to look after the girls. Uh, she then stays there for two hours. I go back and pick her up. And basically, she has a patch over her eye. She's still in absolute agony and is for the next two days. She's lying in bed. She is basically crying with pain for that length of time and can't see. It basically has the lights off. It's not a good moment. The main reason why this is a problem is those two days are my prep days for a wedding that I'm speaking at and leading, Jack and Laura's wedding. Um, and therefore, I cannot do that because I'm looking after the children because I'm a dad and that's what you do. And it's a good thing to do that. Uh, but it does mean I am now stressed because I have nothing to say for a wedding talk. And a wedding talk is, is an important thing. You don't want to ruin somebody's wedding day. Um, so uh, finally, we managed to get some babysitters, and they come, and they look after the girls, and I have an hour. I have one hour to go out and write a talk. So I run out of the house. I run down to the car. I sit in the car, and I turn the engine, and... I left the lights on, so the battery died. I run back up to the house. I get on my bike, and I start cycling. Drenched. Laptop drenched. Me drenched. Very not happy. This is my internal reaction at this point. Seriously, God? Really? <laughs> this, this is how it goes? Let me remind you of something, God. I'm a good person. Yeah? Stop laughing. I'm a good person. I work hard. I work hard for you, God. I'm, I'm studying your word two and a half days a week. I teach your word three days a week. I mean, what more do you expect? I'm a volunteer elder at a church. I pray. I read my Bible. Like, come on, seriously. I am trying really hard. I've, I've offered to take this wedding, which again is a really good thing, and you repay me. You repay me seemingly with no blessing and curses. I have obeyed you, God. And you have abandoned me. It was more or less what's going through my head. Some of you are like, he's a pastor here? <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> Why start with that humorous but embarrassing story? Um, it's a great example of how you can approach God. What I mean by that is this story is a great example of the religious approach to God. It basically works like this. I'm a good person. I do the right things. I live the right way. And because of that, I am entitled to certain things from God. Because I am a good person, God should reward me and basically make my life easier. And to some extent, I get to set the criteria of how God should reward me. In religious language, I obey God, therefore I'm accepted by him. I obey God, therefore I'm entitled to things from him. If I don't obey God, I should be rejected by him. And if I don't obey God, I should expect bad things to happen. This is actually really common in belief systems uh, around the world. So if uh, somebody is a Muslim, then they would believe that Allah uh, rewards their faithful following of him. And that some of the ways that... that um, following is, is kind of tracked is through daily prayer and annual fast, uh, a pilgrimage once in your lifetime to Mecca and uh, through giving to the needy. 
None of those are necessarily bad things, but the system is you, you work hard and therefore God rewards you. For Hindus, it's slightly different, but there's a similar theme. For Hindus, it's about transcending this world to be at one with God, and you transcend this world by having good dharma, which affects your karma. And basically, if you have good enough karma, you manage to break through, break free of the cycle of reincarnation, and you become one with God. You do the right things, you get to be right with God. Lots of spirituality in the UK today is similar. The kind of common phrase there, if you, if you let what's inside of you come out, then you will live the life that you're meant to live. And to some extent, you'll understand who you were made to be, who, who God is and who you were intended to be if you let what is intrinsically in you out. So if you follow through on your impulses and your desires, then you become one with how you were made to be. When you put Christianity in today's passage kind of next to those other beliefs and the religious mindset, you see that it, it's black and white. It's totally different. Christians believe that we are right with God, not because we've obeyed him or behaved well or lived correctly, not even because we love him or are devoted to him. We're right with God because of one simple thing. We're right with God because God has acted to make us right with him, to restore our relationship with him. In the story, God is the one who is wronged, and yet he's the one who's taken the step to forgive the guilty party, which is, which is us. He's the one who comes to seek and save the lost. If you're here and you're not a Christian, or uh, you're here and you're in conversation with other people, maybe in your workplace, uh, Mike, uh, you might hear some people say, all religions are basically the same, and they all lead to the same God. It's simply not true, and it's actually disrespectful to say that, not just to Christians, but to anybody who holds a particular uh, religion. Um, Christianity is unique in that it is God who has acted on behalf of humanity, not humanity who needs to act in order to please God. We saw last week in chapters 2 and 3 of Romans that, that Paul argues humanity is alike. It's equal in its sin. We're all connected by our universal failure to live as God intended us to live. And having now told you my embarrassing story, I can say that I'm connected with that failure as well. And you can say, yes, you are. Thank you, Matt. (laughs) In today's verses, what we see is Paul writes about how God has acted in Jesus to save humanity so that now humanity might be equal in something else as well. Now humanity might be equal in our access to God. All humanity now has the opportunity to return to God, regardless of our works, regardless of our past, present, or future. Your record isn't what defines you, but God's action in Jesus. So let's say you're a porn addict, or a gambler, or a gossip, or you've abused people, or you've dishonored people, or you're just a selfish person, or you've lived for yourself and not for other people. The gospel says none of that prevents you from coming into relationship with God. That's the scandal. That's the scandal of divine grace. We receive what we don't deserve, forgiveness, acceptance, and love. We don't earn it. We don't merit it. It's a gift. Paul puts it like this in chapter 3. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. There's a new era of salvation. 
is what Paul is saying. The Old Testament looked forward to the coming of Jesus and now Jesus has come and he's lived and he's died and he's resurrected and he's ascended to be at the right hand of God so that humanity could return into right relationship with God again. All can now enter that relationship. See how many times that verse it said all? It's easy to say all if you look a certain way, all if you act a certain way. Paul isn't saying that, he's saying all. Different sexual orientations, different understandings of gender, different races, different backgrounds, different classes, different amounts of money in the bank account, different amounts of ability of how to cope with that money in the bank account. Different jobs, different professions, accountants, murderers, pornographers, all can now enter into a relationship with God because God decides that humanity is lovable and lovely out of his choice rather than looking at our record. So how do we receive this? How do we get to come into this relationship with God? Faith. Faith means placing your trust in something. You're all sat on chairs. It's because you have faith in the chair. You don't just believe that the chair exists. You have faith in the chair because you sat on it. Having faith in Jesus is putting your trust in Jesus. So how do you do that? How do you put your trust in Jesus? How do you, how do you take that step if you've never taken it before? First thing is you confess your sin. The first thing is you say, I have rebelled against God. I've walked away from God. I've broken that relationship with him. I'm in need of saving. And I'm pretty sure, in fact, I'm certain, I don't think I can bridge the gap. I don't think I can do the saving. You confess. Secondly, you proclaim. You proclaim, I think Jesus did it on my behalf. I think Jesus is Lord and Savior. I think God acted to save me and forgive me out of his grace, not my merit. To restore my relationship with him, to restore this image of God which I carry, which is broken and distorted. I believe that God acted so that Jesus could come and save me and restore me so that I might bear more and more accurately the image of God that I was intended to bear. And the third thing is I'm going, I commit. I commit to Jesus. I'm now going to commit to living for him. I'm going to obey him. I'm going to follow. I'm not just going to say Jesus is great and then live life how I want it. I'm going to say Jesus is great and I want to live for him. I might fail and I will often fail, but I'm going to live for him. I'm going to take his words seriously. So you're here this morning. You're not a Christian. The door's open. You're here this morning. You've wandered away. The door's open. You're here this morning and you're a really good person and you've done really well. The door's open. You need to come back to God this morning, and Jesus has made that possible. So let's say you come back to him, or let's say you're already in relationship with him. What does that life look like? What does a a life of faithfulness to God look like? What does a life of continually walking with God look like? Let's just return to that story at the beginning, because the story at the beginning happened when I was a Christian. So let's say you have the bad week. Let's say you realize that, man, I, I, trust my, I trust my own works. I'm functionally believing that I'm right with God because of my work. So let's say you just have that week which you wish you were never going to have again. It's the week of pornography. It's the week of gambling. It's the week of gossiping. It's the week of uh, going too far with your girlfriend or your boyfriend. Or it's the week of you cheating on your girlfriend and your boyfriend. But you're doing it all after saying, Jesus is Lord, and I want to follow him. 
How do you reconcile those two, two things? How do I say I'm living a life of faithfulness when if I look at some of my behavior or my actions, I go, I'm far away from that? Because that's what God desires. He wants a life of us faithfully walking in with him. He wants a life of us transformed so that we don't go to those things, but we, like Rich was saying at the beginning, where Jesus is on the throne and we live with complete obedience to him. Paul uses two examples in chapter 4 to help us with this. And I love the examples he uses. He uses the example of Abraham and David. I think we've got some photos. There you go. That's one of those jokes that gets funnier the longer you leave it. <laughs> Paul holds these guys up and he says to the church, these guys are really good examples of faithfulness. The big reason why I find that really helpful, they're not very good guys. They have two major failures in their life. Abraham gets this amazing promise from God that one of his kids, or his only kid, is going to be uh, the child through which God is going to birth a, nature, uh, a nation. He's going to have descendants upon descendants upon descendants from this child. And this child's going to be a miracle because Abraham's wife can't give birth. And Abraham says, that sounds amazing. I'm totally on board with this. His wife's like, boom, that sounds great. And in the next chapter, his wife says, mm, it's been a while. I think you should sleep with my, my slave woman and we could have a baby that way. And Abraham goes, that's a great idea. And he does. And they have a baby that way. Abraham trusts in his own works, trusts in his own efforts to bring about God's promises. David, I'm named after David. I find that helpful apart from with this unfortunate bit of his story. He's made a king of God's nation. He is, he is the beloved king. He's the one who, who's the one who was after God's own heart. I like that bit of David's story. The problem is David stays home one weekend when all the guys go off to fight a war. He decides to kick back and he stays in his castle or his palace. And he's bored one night and so he's roaming the halls. He can't sleep and he goes out into, maybe let's say he goes on top of his palace and he spots an attractive young lady having a bath on the other side of the courtyard and he gets his servant and says, I'm going to sleep with her, bring her to me. The servant brings her to him and David effectively does what he wants to do with her. She then gets pregnant. David recognizes that this is a bit of a problem. He tries to convince her husband to sleep with her as well so that uh, the baby could be seen as his rather than the king's. But his husband is too honorable and he, and he says, I'm not going to do that because I'm currently at war. So David has him killed. That's quite a departure from a king who's after God's own heart. And Paul says, these are the two guys. These are the two guys to follow if you want to live a life of faithfulness. What's going on? The religious heart says they are not good examples. They behave very badly. They are not good examples to follow. They should be rejected. They should be out of the story. They should be cut out. Why on earth is Paul bringing them in? And Paul says they're examples not because their behavior was impeccable. It's because they returned to God when their behavior wasn't impeccable. They trusted in God when they realized that they really could not trust in themselves. Paul writes this in chapter 4, verses 5 and 8. To the one who does not work, but trusts uh, trust God, who justifies the ungodly there, faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Remember what David's done. Blessed 
Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven. Blessed are those whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Blessed is the one who is forgiven even though he is an adulterer and a murderer. And God still says, you're clean because he's trusting in what God says about him. We may or may not have committed the same things that David did, but Paul's already said we're equal with David. We've all sinned, we're all ungodly. David's response is one of faith, putting his trust back in God's mercy, God's grace, God's forgiveness. That is what Paul says, this is to be your response. To live a life of faithfulness is to constantly return to putting our faith in God's forgiveness of us. So what does it look like? Five things, really quickly. Firstly, you've got to recognize your sin. I know that sounds like a silly one, but for some of you, you're like, I think I'm doing all right. And genuinely, probably for some of you, you're not doing too badly. Ask the Holy Spirit to convict you. He likes doing that. He likes exposing where we're not following Jesus completely because he seeks transformation. For some of you, you guys have got great friends. And if you say to those great friends, is there anything in me that you think is not in line with Jesus? They'll be like, oh, praise the Lord. Yes. I've been waiting for this day. And for others of you, you know what it is. It's so blindingly obvious in your life and you're just living with it. And you're like, I can't do anything but recognize it. What do I do next? You confess it. You, you tell somebody. You, t- you confess it to God. I have done this. My heart behind it was this. And I would advise you, tell a trusted Christian brother and sister. Get somebody alongside you to say, I, I need to tell you some stuff. I need to get it off of me out into the open. Here, I think, is where we get a bit stuck. I think we can go, I recognize I'm a sinner. I can tell somebody, maybe I can tell somebody I'm a sinner. I don't really know what to do after that bit. I think I'm just going to go and try harder. I think I'm just going to go and grip my teeth, move my computer out of my room, never be with my girlfriend after half past nine at night, and that's, that's going to be it. That's going to be how I'm going to fix this. And it just doesn't work because your effort is not enough. My effort is not enough. Believe me, I've tried it a lot. It doesn't work. We need to repent. We need to ask God to help us turn from those things. We need to ask God to say, I can't just rely on my own effort. I'm going to turn from relying on my own effort. I'm going to come to you, Lord, and see that my effort alone cannot solve this problem. Only you can solve this problem, God. Turning from self to God, the next thing is receive. Because God has some things that he wants to give you, and they're things like forgiveness. He's coming and saying, please, wash me clean. Forgive me again. Father, pour your love out into my heart, because I don't, I don't sense that you love me at the moment. I don't believe that you love me. Ask the Holy Spirit, come and cleanse me. Come and change my thought patterns. Come and do the work that I can't do to change the heart that I can't change. Give me the power to change. And lastly, this is a really important one. Rejoice. Thank God, worship God, love God, delight in God, spend time with God, not because you have to or because me and Matt have told you to or Rich has told you to or because you read somewhere that it was a good idea. Spend time with God because spending time with God is the place where you get to receive all of the things that you need, the forgiveness, the love, the power to change. Dance around the kitchen with worship songs on and be like, this is ridiculous, I'm a sinner, but Jesus loves me and so I'm going to dance, I'm going to sing because this is crazy. I get to be free. I get to be forgiven because of what God has done for me. 
We show our faithfulness to God when we're trusting in him. It doesn't please God to go around morose and depressed because of how sinful you are. And I like doing that. If you know me, that's kind of what I like to do. I'm a cynic at heart. So it breaks those things. When I'm dancing with my daughters in the kitchen, I'm like, Jesus has saved me. It's so amazing. I love him. He loves me. Even though I'm a sinner. Thank you. Scandalous, but transformative. Our religious heart said, Dave, that is not fair. That's not okay. You're a bad person. You've done bad things. Faith in Jesus says, yeah, all of those things are true, but I love you. And I want to change you and transform you. I want you to dance. I want you to sing. I want you to put your arms in the air in worship. That's the last time I'm dancing in the front of church, by the way. <laughs> Mainly just to make a point. That's the David example. What's the Abraham example? Abraham example is, hey, you can have hope. You can live a life of hope that things are going to get better and things are going to change, even if circumstances right now don't look that great. So when Paul writes about Abraham, it says, Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations without weakening in his faith. He faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was 100 years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. What that means is when Abraham looked at himself, he went, I'm really old, and things don't work like they used to. And he looked at his wife and go, you're really old, and things don't work like they used to. And that strengthened his faith because he said, it really is not going to be us. It's really not going to be our ability. It's got to be God's. And I, my faith that God has the power to do this is increasing as we are wasting away. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness, faith. The words it was credited to him were not written for him alone, but also... Oh. Uh, for also for us, to whom God will credit righteous, righteousness, for those who believe in him who raised Jesus from our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. You know what? God has promised us a lot of things, many, 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 many things, and we can hope in those promises. Sometimes we get confused because we think what God has promised us is actually just things that we want, and sometimes that's a painful realization. That means God hasn't promised you a husband or a wife. It means God hasn't promised you kids. God hasn't promised you a promotion in your job. God hasn't promised that I'm going to be the best preacher in the world. God hasn't promised that I'm going to pass my master's. God hasn't promised that things are going to go really, really well for my kids and they're going to grow up and be happy and healthy. Things could go really badly. But God has promised me some other things. God has promised me that I'm going to be forgiven that death isn't the end, that I can have communion with God, that one day this world of brokenness and injustice and inequality is going to change and it's going to be better and it's going to be transformed and it's going to be renewed and there's going to be no more pain or death or mourning. And the more I look at the brokenness of the world and the more I see my hopes in things of this world disappearing, the more my faith goes to the fact that I'm like, those things don't matter as much as what God has promised me. Those things do matter to me. They're dear to my heart. But God has promised me better things, greater things, things that have eternal value. And as those things waste away and they break, as my body wastes away, as my hair goes, and I know that's a stupid one, but as my hair goes, my hope is in the new heavens and new earth because I'm getting a full body of hair in the new heavens and new earth. (laughs) Or else I ain't going in. For some of you, you're looking a lot at the things of this world and your hope is a lot placed in the things of this world. 
And God is wanting you to lift your eyes and remind you of the things that are truly important, the things that truly matter, the things that you can truly place your hope in. And you go, how can I trust God when you go back to the cross? How is God going to be faithful to me? You go back to the cross. Jesus, arms stretched out, blood pouring down, dying for your sin. Because he's saying, I love you so much. Look to me. Lift your eyes to me. Because I'm the one who's securing everything you ever need. I'm I'm your future. I'm your hope. I'm your love. I'm your intimacy. I'm your relationship. I'm your communion. I'm the one who can get you through the tough days. I'm your comforter. I'm your counselor. You come to me. Amen. Can you stand with me? I'd love to pray for us. Yeah, great. We've got a moment to respond. As we respond, we're going to be taking up our offering as well. I just want you to come before God this, this afternoon. I want you just to be really honest with him. You, you know where he needs to meet with you. You know where you're longing for him to meet with you. Can I just pray for us? Holy Spirit, would you come and minister to us this afternoon? Would you come and bring the grace that we need, the forgiveness that we need? Lord, I pray for those who feel so condemned in the room right now. Please bring your grace. Bring your, bring your forgiveness. Bring your cleansing. Let them know deep in their spirit and their soul. You look at them and you say, you're clean. For those who need hope because the circumstances aren't providing the hope, I pray you'd help them to lift their eyes to Jesus and bring them hope. Bring them hope of a future Help them to look around, to see the family that's alongside them that's going to support them. Father, I pray for intimacy. I pray for you to draw close by your spirit right now. Help us to worship, Lord. I pray for those people who are in that place of going, I just want to rejoice. I pray you'd help us rejoice. And for those other people where it's, I need to repent, I need to confess, I need to receive, Lord, bring your Holy Spirit to bear on those people. Amen.